passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And what I want to do is uh, kind of frame this morning's passage um, in the context of grace. So we're talking about grace this morning. Um, in this passage, it's all about grace. It's all about this free gift that God has given to his people, a gift of life, a, a gift of deliverance to anyone who would come to him in faith. And I'll admit that grace is a very church word. It's not something that we hear every day. Um, outside of the church walls. Um, but So I, I, think, I think it's important for us to go ahead and take a moment to define what grace actually means. In the Bible, this idea of grace refers to an unmerited favor from God. It's not something that you can earn from God. And maybe a, a more common but probably less accurate way of describing grace is just to refer to it as a gift. And, and that's the foundation of everything that we do on a Sunday morning. It's this gift from God. It's this grace from God, this unmerited favor, this, this free gift of life and deliverance. Now, with all that said, this idea of grace is so foreign to the human heart. The default state of our hearts is not one of grace. We, we either think that we don't need grace and we have to be convinced that we need grace, or on the other hand, we, we think we don't deserve it and it's too good to be true. And I think those are the two biggest stumbling blocks that face people who, who would become a Christian. On the one hand, we have those who... who so we have to be convinced that they actually need grace. They actually need saving from God. A, cu- a couple of, not a couple of years ago, I was 10. <laughs> Thankfully, it was longer than 10 or a couple of years ago. When I was 10, I was back at home and, and, um, in Clorinda and I was swimming at our local pool. And um, I, growing up, I was on our, our local town um, swim team. So I could handle myself in the water. And I was swimming across the pool when all of a sudden someone grabs me from behind, throws me on my back, and says, don't worry, you're safe now. And I'm like, what is going on? And I look and try to find, and and lo and behold, there's a lifeguard who grabbed me while I was swimming, apparently thought that I was drowning, that I needed help, and decided that they were going to save me. And and in one sense, I appreciate it, but also in the moment, I was really ticked. I I just could not believe what was happening. It It was embarrassing. It was this moment where actually I think they said I couldn't get back in the water until my, my mom and dad came and watched me or I could just leave. It was, it was this moment that, that I, didn't, I didn't need saving, at least in my own mind. And, and actually, I saw this person about six weeks ago. I was back in my hometown, um, this lifeguard who saved me. And uh, I still maintain to this day that I didn't need saving. A lot of people are like Jordan when it comes to that story when he was 10. We're not convinced that we need saving. We're not convinced that we need someone to come and rescue us. And so this gift of of salvation, a gift of of deliverance, just makes no sense. It's a category that's completely foreign to us. It's not just for those that are outside the church. It's for those that are inside the church as well. We don't have a category for needing the gift of grace. But there's another 
another stumbling block that faces us when it comes to grace. I mentioned that grace isn't the default state of our heart. One problem is that we have to be convinced that we actually need it. For some people, however, there isn't this need to be convinced that we need grace, that we've done enough wrong things in our life to be saved, to need saving. For us, grace is too good to be true. That I look at all of the things that I've done in my life, I've looked at all the ways that I've screwed my life up, and there's nothing that I can do to make it right. And this idea that someone would actually care to come and save me, it's just too good to be true. And I've actually had a number of conversations with people over the years about this very idea, that they struggle with forgiving themselves because of what they've done in the past. And people will say, I know that God says he forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And that's a a way of looking at this world that says, you know what, maybe this idea of forgiveness is actually true, but at the same time, God is not impressed. And I have to tread very carefully. I have to be very, very careful. Otherwise, God is just looking for an opportunity to say, never mind, I'm going to take that promise, that gift of grace back. And these are the two great stumbling blocks that face us when it comes to grace. On the one hand, it's this idea, this this foreign concept that it's actually necessary. On the other hand is this idea that it's just too good to be true. And this morning's passage looks at both. This morning's passage is about this need that we have for grace, but also this reality that, that grace isn't too good to be True. First Samuel chapter 12 describes both of these pitfalls that face us. Before we jump into this passage, we're going to pray. But before we pray, we'll soon see in this passage is that nothing can happen in our hearts, in our lives, without the intervention of God. That's one thing that we'll see in this passage. And so as we pray this morning, this isn't just something that we say, we go through the motions of, well, we're supposed to pray because that's what we always do when it comes to approaching the Bible. I want us to really consider, why are we here? What am I doing here? Am I here because this is just what I'm supposed to do? Am I searching? Am I here because I actually want to hear from God? Maybe you don't want to hear from God, but you know you should want to hear from God. And so you're like, well, Jordan, I'm not, I'm not really at that point, but, but I want to want to hear from God. This passage talks about the heart's desire and how we need to desperately cry out to God for him to reveal himself, for him to speak to us. And so let's take a moment and do just that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we we do long to hear from you this morning. We need to hear from you this morning. We know that only you can give us eyes to see, only you can give us ears to hear what you would say to us. And so we ask in your mercy, that you would come and give us soft hearts. Lord, I I ask that you would use this beautiful text to speak to every single person here this morning, that you would help us to see our need for grace by revealing to us the weight of our sin. Help us to see the trustworthiness of your character too. That you are a faithful, trustworthy God, that the grace you offer is just that, it's grace. It's a gift. It's not too good to be true. 
Help us, God, because we need you. Speak to us through your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 12 breaks apart into to three different parts. Um, Samuel is addressing the people of Israel, and first we see Samuel's report, then Samuel's charge, and then finally Samuel's assurance. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning as we work our way through this text. We'll go ahead and start with Samuel's report, starting in verse 1. It says this, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you, and now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before this anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Let's remind ourselves of where we are at in the book of 1 Samuel to this point. Samuel is the leader of Israel. He's what is called a judge. Chapter 8 tells us that he is nearing the end of his life, and, and everyone begins to think about succession planning. All right, all right. We, what is going to happen after Samuel is gone? And so Samuel has an idea. He throws it out. He says, hey, my sons are here. Let's just go ahead and appoint them. They can be the, the future judges of Israel. There's only one problem. They are wicked and corrupt. They're taking bribes. And so uh, everyone doesn't really want that, uh, understandably so. But the plan that they bring forth isn't that, better, that much better. They look around and, and say, hey, you know what? All of these other nations, they have kings. That seems like a pretty good idea. Let's go ahead and do the same. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they ask for a king. This doesn't sit well with Samuel, but God tells Samuel to appoint a king anyway. And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11, that's exactly what happens. We see the ascension of King Saul, the leader of God's people. Last week in chapter 11, we saw like the the high point of Saul's life and, and we saw what it was like for a king to actually faithfully point people to God. And there's this great victory, this great, great deliverance that, that happens for the people of Israel through Saul's hands, and, and everyone's riding on cloud nine. And so Samuel says, all right, now's the time for us to renew the kingdom. And he says this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14, let's renew the kingdom. And so they, they call this, this gathering together, and that's actually what we see this morning. This speech, Samuel's farewell address is what some of your Bibles may refer to it as, is this renewal of the kingdom of the people of God. So we have this transition of power here in Israel. Samuel is the last judge. Now Saul is the king, and we're transitioning leadership. And in his final words as Israel's leader, Samuel invites anyone to bring a charge against him. It says, hey, if I've done wrong to any of you, go ahead and bring forth your complaints. And no one can do so. The, the point in verse 3 is very obvious. He's, he's not abused this position. He's been an exceedingly faithful leader. And we'll get into the reason why he does this here in a moment. Let's pick up in verse 4. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from a man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, And as anointed as witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So Samuel asks for anyone to bring forth any sort of wrongdoing that he has committed. No one does. 
All of Israel agrees that Samuel has been a faithful leader this entire time, leading them the way God would have him lead the people, but Samuel's not done. We get to verse 5, and he calls God as a witness of their confession. He essentially makes them take an oath, saying, I've not done anything wrong. I have not led you astray. And we pick up in verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed for you and for your fathers. So Samuel calls the Lord to be a witness of his faithfulness. Let's go ahead and and take a step back and and just look at the structure of this passage because it helps us understand what is going on here. So Samuel is making an argument, and he's building toward that argument. We'll get to it here in a moment, the the key part of his argument. But first, he he brings himself forth, and he says, I want want to look at my own life. I want to see if anything that I have done has actually led you astray from God. And that's what verses 1 through 5 are about. Then he transitions to the second part of his argument, and that is this testimony not of Samuel's faithfulness, but actually of God's faithfulness. Saying, we're going to look now at how God has treated us, his people. And that's what he's transitioning here in verses 6 and 7. He's going from Samuel, now he's going to look at how God has, has treated the people of Israel over the course of their history. So verse 8. When Jacob went into, into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Let's stop right there for a moment. So Samuel starts all the way back at the beginning of the history of Israel. It goes all the way back to the Exodus, saying, when you were oppressed in Egypt, God heard your cries and delivered his people and then brought them into the promised land. Notice how God does it, according to verse 8. God hears the cries of his people, and he delivers them by sending Moses and Aaron to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. So here's what happens. God hears the cries of his people for a deliverer. God responds by sending a deliverer, or in this case, two deliverers. You might see where the argument is going here. Verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatsor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, these two verses aren't really all that uh, surprising to you. This is actually what the book of Judges is all about. Israel enters into the promised land, and they almost immediately go their own way. They say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with this Lord, this Yahweh, this God. We're actually going to go find some other gods that that suit us a little bit better. And so they go chase after these other gods. The book of Judges is about this 400 years 
that takes place right before the book of 1 Samuel, where the people of Israel need a Savior, need a Deliverer. And if you look at the book of Judges, this is how it works. There's this cycle on display. Israel rebels against God. They abandon God. That's the first thing that happens. And then God sends someone to oppress them, gives them into the hands of their enemies as a way to, to get their attention. That's the second thing that happens. Third, Israel cries out for help in the midst of their affliction. And the fourth thing that happens is that God delivers them. And he delivers them by sending a deliverer. That's what Samuel is reminding Israel of here in this passage. For 400 years, whenever we needed a deliverer, we cried out to God, and guess what God did? He sent us a deliverer. It doesn't matter if it was Gideon or Jeroboam is another way of saying his name, or Barak or Jephthah or me, Samuel. God has shown himself throughout our history of being completely and utterly faithful because even when we sin, we cry out to God and he delivers us. God is always dependable. We will never have to doubt if God is faithful. Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. Verse 12 is the heart of Samuel's argument. Do you catch the weight of this verse right here? It's like Samuel is saying, all right, here's how things have worked, everyone. When we need a deliverer, we cry out to God, we rely on God. He sends a deliverer, but not this time. For some reason, when Nahash shows up, 1 Samuel 11 tells us about Nahash. He's terrorizing the eastern part of Israel, and everything is happening. And instead of doing what they've always done, crying out to God, because God always delivers them, instead of crying out to God for a deliverer, they say, you know what? We need a king. That'll save us. You see why Samuel is absolutely dumbfounded in this moment. It's, it's, Samuel sees this as the lowest point to this point in Israel's history. Because right now, from, from their very inception, all the way back to the time of, of the Exodus, whenever Israel needs help, they cry out for help, God comes through. God has always shown himself to be faithful. God has never not come through. And even when Israel can't bother to keep up their end of the bargain, their end of the covenant, this relationship between God and Israel, God is utterly faithful. He always delivers Israel. He always saves them. He always sends a faithful leader to lead his people back to him. That's true of Samuel in verses 1 through 5. It's true of Moses and Aaron in verses 6 through 8. It's true of the judges in verses 9 through 11. But then you go and ask for a king when you already have a king, and that king is God himself. This is the heart of Samuel's argument. He wants Israel to feel the weight of their sin in this moment, that this is a big deal that they have every reason to trust God, and they reject him instead. They don't want God, this God who has been patient, utterly faithful, 
always caring for his people. And when they're faced with terror in eastern Israel, they reject him and say, give us a king. I think there's an important lesson for us here in these verses as well. Just like Israel, we have every reason to trust God. Every reason to trust God. To depend upon him. And yet, all too often, just like Israel, we go a different direction. Just like Israel chased after a king rather than running to the Lord, we run every which way for happiness, hope, peace, satisfaction, fulfillment. That's our lives. We put too much trust in our bank account number. We, we care too much about what other people think about us or what other people think about our kids. We rely too much on vacations or time off or travel for, for satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness in our lives. We run to food to make ourselves feel better when we're feeling down. We convince ourselves that if we just put in a few more hours at work, then we'll reach the peace that we finally have been looking for. We spend too much time looking in the mirror trying to get our appearance just right so that way we can feel good about ourselves. Our lives feel ruins when all of our well-laid plans are, are thrown askew. We spend all of our time on our phone trying to escape reality and on and on and on and we are just like Israel. That we run to these things because we see them and we say that is what is going to give me what I so desperately need. You see what Samuel's words here are saying to Israel and, and also to us as well. That if we're not depending upon the Lord, this faithful God who, who always comes through, always comes through, then we're rejecting him. If we're not depending upon him, then we are rejecting him. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. A lack of dependence upon God Whatever you substitute in its place, a lack of dependence upon God is at its core a rejection of God. And that's Israel's, or God, or Samuel's message for Israel 3,000 years ago. It's God's message for us this morning. Samuel's argument here in this text is that Israel is without excuse in their rebellion against God, because he's always been faithful. He's always come through. He's always given them exactly what they need, and yet Israel chooses to reject him. And all too often, the same is true today. God has given us everything we need. He's always been faithful, and yet we run elsewhere. God's always been faithful, and a lack of dependence upon him is a rejection of him. So we ask ourselves, does Israel listen? Does Israel listen to this argument that Samuel is making? Are we going to listen to this argument? I, I can't answer the second, but we'll find out the first here in our next section, Samuel's charge, verse 13. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. We have this transition here, and, and and just, it's astounding that God takes Israel's rebellion against him and he will use it for good. Earlier we sang that God 
gives beauty for ashes, and, and that's exactly what's taking place right here. God takes this ash heap of Israel's request for a king and uses it for good, ultimately furthering his plans and his purposes to save a people from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. He's ultimately going to use it to fix his broken creation by sending the chosen king, Jesus, at long last. What a God. Verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This language goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. I've mentioned multiple times, Deuteronomy is just a, such an important book for understanding all of the significance, all of the weight of what's taking place in 1 Samuel. This book, Deuteronomy, is about God's commitment to his people. It's called a covenant, this unbreakable commitment that he makes with them, and he gives them two paths in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, there's two paths before you when it comes to following me. He says this in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. And Samuel actually picks up on this language. He uses this language here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. He says, you basically have two paths before you. You have life and death. You have blessing and curse. If you continue down this path that you've been going on, this, this path of rejecting God, of going your own way, destruction awaits. But if you hear what I'm saying, if you repent of your sin, if you ask the sin of asking for a king, if you come back to him, if you choose, after, choose to chase after God, then life awaits you. This isn't a form of work salvation here, saying that I have to do good for God to, to um, get on God's good side. That's, that's the whole point of Deuteronomy. If you look in De I just read from Deuteronomy 30. If you look at the beginning of Deuteronomy 30, the entire point is that Israel fails. They will fail. Right before this idea of choosing life is this recognition that Israel does not choose life. But at the same time, there's this God who, who welcomes them back anyway. And so these two paths that are before us, they're not a way of earning it before God. Samuel's telling us that this is what a life of worship looks like. This life of obedience to God is lived in light of the deliverance that God has already given to his people. Now let's go back to our question. Does this sink in for Israel? Do they get it? Do they, they understand the peril of this moment? Do they grasp the weight of their sin? Do they grasp that reject, they rejected God in asking for a king? Do, do they understand Samuel's argument in verses 1 through 12? The answer is no. Take a look at verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. 
Samuel knows that there is nothing that he can do. There's nothing he can say that will break into the hearts of these people who have rejected God. Only God can do that. And so he asks God to intervene. He says, God, we need you to show up here in, the mo- in this moment as everyone's gathered at Gilgal. We need you to show your might, show your power. And that's exactly what God does in verses 16 through 18. The wheat harvest is in, in May and June, which is the dry season in Israel. And so Samuel's point here is this. God is going to send thunder and rain, which would have been completely unheard of in the midst of their dry season, as a testament that he's watching, that he's paying attention. And we're not just going through the motions here, but God is actually present with us. It's a, it's a confirmation that Samuel is actually speaking God's word, that God actually cares how we respond to this. But this moment does something more than just proving that God is present I think it's also a warning. If we go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, in 1 Samuel 2, we see Hannah, the the mother of Samuel, she's praying this prayer, and and there's a number of themes that we see in in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that are picked up over the course of 1 Samuel. It sets the stage for the rest of the book, and notice what she says in that prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So God doesn't just send a rainstorm to prove that he is watching. He thunders from heaven. It's a statement of how serious God is about this moment, how offended he is by Israel's rejection of him. It's a statement about the weight of their sin. And though it may not seem like it, this is actually a gift that God is showing them his displeasure with them. He doesn't just say, ah, forget it. It's too late. You're done for. But he actually intervenes That's the message of chapter 12, verse 14, return to me and it will be well. That's the the message of the second half of chapter 2, verse 10. There's this promise. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Samuel is saying, if you and your king return to me, return to God and follow God, it will be well. You will flourish in the land but they need God to intervene for this to actually sink in. And that's what we see happen in verse 18. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. God intervenes and the people get it. Without God intervening, without God at work, Samuel could preach until he is blue in the face. I could preach until I'm blue in the face. And nothing would ever come of it. That's why I said before we prayed this morning, this, this time, like, are we actually praying these words? Are we actually just saying these as a prayer? Asking God to speak to us, not just, not just corporately, but me as an individual, God, would you speak to me? Would you uncover 
my sin that I am blind to in my life, that you would show me how, how I have offended you, that, that as I stand, God, at this crossroads between life and death, that you would show me the path of life. That's the message of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Here in these verses, it says, today is the day for repentance, for faith, and new obedience. And Samuel is calling the people to return to God. It says recognition that today is the day for repentance. Today is the day for faith. Today is the day for new obedience. I wish that every person here would be crying out to God, asking God to speak to them, that, that we would see how our sin has, has kept us far from him, that God would speak to us. And that just like the people of Israel in verse 18, we would fear the Lord greatly. That no matter where we're at, whether we're far from God or we have been following him, today is the day to respond. Today is the day for faith, trusting in this God who delivers. Today is the day for new obedience, whether that obedience is for the first time or the 10,000th time, that today is the day where we make a commitment anew to follow him in obedience, that we take Samuel's words to heart, that we would see this is a glorious opportunity to chase after God and repentance, faith, and new obedience. But there's another word that this passage has for us here. It's because if we actually become aware of our sin by the grace of God that he reveals to us our sin, if we don't also simultaneously grasp the character of God, it can lead to despair. And that's actually what we see from Israel here in this moment. And that's why Samuel gives them words of assurance at the end of this chapter. It says this, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So the people get it. They grasp their sin, and yet at the same time, it seems like they think that grace is too good to be true. And so they say, you know what? We need you, Samuel, to, to intercede for us so that God does not put us to death for our rebellion against him. And what follows is Samuel's words of assurance, some of the most beautiful verses, not just in this chapter, but the entire book of 1 Samuel. If you're tempted to despair, run to verses 20, 21, and 22. It says this, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. I want to preach an entire sermon on those three verses. They're so rich. But just notice what they teach us about God's character here. More importantly, notice what they teach us about the foundation of God's grace in his character toward rebellious sinners like me. It's found in verse 22. 
For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So where is this assurance found? Where does Samuel locate the foundation of God's grace? It's not in you and me. It's not in how we're feeling today. It's not in how good of a job you are doing at following him today. It's not in any of those things. The Lord will not forsake his people. Why? We're given two, two reasons. For his great name's sake, but also because he's decided to make a people for himself. In other words, verse 22 tells us that God has already decided the matter. He will not change his mind. He is not fickle. We may break his covenant, but he will not. We may reject him, but God does not reject his children. We may not be trustworthy, but God is completely trustworthy. You may not feel like you are worthy of his love and grace because you habitually, persistently struggle with the same sin over and over. And no matter how many times you repent, no matter how many times you try to turn your back on it, you eventually find yourself right back at it. But we don't get to decide whether God is going to forsake us. God has already spoken, and the matter is closed. My favorite quote outside of the Bible, I've shared this a handful of times over the years on Sundays. It's one that it's, it's worth always keeping in front of us. It's from a pastor from the 1800s. His name is Charles Spurgeon. He says this, I am sure he would not love me so long and then leave off loving me. If he intended to be tired of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a love as deep as hell and as unutterable as the grave, if he had not given his whole heart to me, I'm sure he would have turned from me long ago. He knew what I would be, and he has had long enough time to consider it. But I am his choice, and there is an end of it. And unworthy as I am, it is not mine to grumble if he is but contented with me, but he is contented with me. He must be contented with me, for he has known me long enough to know my faults. He knew me before I knew myself. He knew me before I was myself. That line there, unworthy as I am, it is not mine to grumble if he is but contented with me, and he is contented with me. If you are in Christ Jesus, the Father delights in you. He doesn't begrudgingly save you as though he really wants to pour wrath out on you because you can't get your act together, but he's forced to because of Jesus. No, God is content with you as his adopted son, his adopted daughter. This is the heart of Samuel's assurance here in these verses. God's commitment is not based in us, but in him. God's commitment is not based in you and me, it's based in him. You want to know why God is so dependable in saving us? It's because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. And Israel desperately needs to hear this. We desperately need to hear this. We need to hear this over and over and over again, which is why Samuel actually commits himself 
to this ministry of prayer and teaching. That's what we see in verse 23. Moreover, as, far, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. I mentioned that this chapter is this transition of power from Samuel as the leader and now we have Saul as the leader. And yet, even though Samuel is quote-unquote retiring, he doesn't see that as an excuse to just fade into the background and do nothing. And it's not the main point of this passage, but I think that's a really good reminder for us that whatever our stage of life, God has a part for us to play in his mission in the people of God. That it might look different in different seasons of life, but as Samuel shows us, there's still a role for us to play. A role that we might not have been able to play if it weren't for that season of transition. And for Samuel, that is this commitment not to being a judge anymore, but now to focus on praying and for teaching. And that's the heart of his warning here as, as we come to the end of the chapter in verse 24 and verse 25. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. He repeats the charge of verse 14 and 15, this promise and this warning, but he also says, hey, consider the great things God has done for you. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. And this is the content of Samuel's teaching. It's the content of his prayers for the people that the, the people of Israel would grasp the foundations of grace and from there that they would live a life of worship. And as we come to the end of this chapter, I think the, the message is the same thing for us as well. If we want to sum up the message of this chapter, it would simply be this. God's grace toward me is not rooted in my faithfulness. Not in my faithfulness, but in his character. It doesn't depend on how good I feel. It doesn't depend on how well I am living the Christian life. God's dealings with me are not rooted in my faithfulness, but rather in his character. And so just as Samuel tells the people of Israel, we respond by living a life of worship, that we should take the, the warnings of this chapter seriously. If we're not walking the path of life, this, this path of repentance, of faith, of new obedience, if we're chasing after the empty things that Samuel mentions here in these verses, these things that cannot profit or deliver, we'll be swept away. But if we've turned to him in repentance and faith, if we put our trust in this king, we've forsaken the ways of rebellion, we live a life of worship, we're given this word of assurance that God's faithfulness, God's commitment, God's grace toward me is not based in my faithfulness, but in his character. What a God. Let's pray. What a promise it is that we find in your word, God.
Thank you. Thank you that in spite of all the ways that we go astray, we chase after empty and vain things. You remain steadfastly committed to your people. God, we ask that you would help us to walk the path of life. To live lives that bring honor and glory to your name. And God, if that's today, if today is the, the first time we, we make that declaration, we ask that you would, through your spirit, enable us to respond. But also, if it's the 10,000th God, we ask that you would enable us to live lives of worship through the power of your spirit. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.